Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. My guest today is Katie Herzog, reporter and co-host of the popular podcast, Blocked and Reported, along with some other guy that we won't name. Uh, she's also a contributor to Barry Weiss's Substack, where she's written a remarkable series of reported pieces on what we might term the creep of unscientific wokeness into the medical field. Um, and we're definitely going to discuss that today. Uh, but, but for those in the know, the most important thing that you need to know about Katie is her position as a linchpin in the radical anti-dog neuter resistance. <laughs> uh, Katie, welcome to High Noon. Thanks for having me. That's a great introduction. <laughs> um, I really want to start out, uh, before we get to the, the critical question of dog neutering, um, I really want to start out with this series of reports that you've written for Barry Weiss's Substack, which, by the way, is completely the new New York Times, um, mm -hmm. on what might flippantly be termed woke medicine. Uh, you've been writing about this subject. You started back in June uh, with a piece called What Happens When Doctors Can't Tell the Truth. Um, what made you start decide, or decide to start reporting on what's happening in med schools or hospitals? Like, How did you get the idea to start looking into sort of the medical field uh, with regard to, to wokeness or whatever we want to call it? I hate that word, but... Yeah. So this story really originated with Barry. She came to me and she was just looking for a reporter to uh, to follow up on some tips that she'd received. So I, I believe the first tip was, uh, you know, Barry had she'd been working on a, a, a series about what's happening in education, which I agree with you. The term wokeness is terrible, but it's also sort of the, the best shorthand we have to describe what's going on. Um, and when she was reporting on uh, education, she'd found this basically a, a, a private Zoom group of dissenters. And the same thing happened with medicine. So she got a tip that there were these doctors um, from all over the country, some of them who work in community health, some of them who work at the top medical institutions in the country who were getting together in secret and discussing this and talking about tactics and what's going on in their institutions. So that's really where the series started and we just uh, uh, broadened it out from there. So that first piece back in June dealt primarily with doctors being silenced or you know, coerced in some way around topics of race. And we've seen race become a factor in medical decision making um, in the last year, all the way up to the level of the CDC, which initially considered it among the factors um, for distributing vaccines or who would have access to vaccines first. Um, I think they initially they ultimately dropped that that guidance, but they were thinking about it. And then Vermont, the state of Vermont, actually did adopt um, a guidance that essentially prioritized vaccines based on race, based on this kind of justification that. Uh, people of color had been um, oppressed over time in the past, and and therefore this kind of active discrimination was necessary to rectify uh, that oppression. Um, this isn't just a matter of, of a few, you know, sort of young people in the field, um, is it? it? It seems like it it actually has gotten pretty high up. I mean, another one of your your pieces is on a lecture that was given at Yale Medical School, I believe, right? So this has gotten into the medical institutions. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There does seem to be this generational divide where you have younger people in particular really pushing this ideology, but it's not just, you know, a bunch of kids. This is also people are listening to them. Leaders are listening to them. Um, in the first piece, I wrote about a woman who she's now the, the what is it? She's the New York City chief medical officer for like the health department. I don't remember her exact title. And she wrote a piece for the Boston Review advocating for, her name is Michelle Morris, advocating for um, for race-based admission. So people would be prioritized for healthcare based on their race. So this is not coming from nowhere. This is coming you know, from people with actual power. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what's um, really scary about it is the way it's been institutionally embraced, um, which I guess is kind of the story more generally in newsrooms and boardrooms. Um, but the, the last piece that you wrote recently, instead of dealing with race, it deals with biological sex, um, which is is in some way like even more scary, right? Uh, because even though there are, and you mentioned, for example, delivery complication rates between black women and white women, there are some limited instances where race is relevant medically. There are a lot more where biological sexism, you know, kind of important with regard, with regard to actually delivering care. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote you interviewing um, a doctor. So 
This hypersensitivity is undermining medical training, and many of these students are likely not even aware that their education is being informed by ideology. Take abdominal aortic aneurysms. I'm going to butcher a lot of these medical terms. Lauren says, these are four times as likely to occur in males than females, but this, this very significant difference wasn't emphasized. I had to look it up, and I don't have the time to look up the sex predominance for the hundreds of diseases I'm expected to know. I'm not even sure what I'm being taught. Um, and, and unless my classmates are as skeptical as I am, they probably aren't aware either. Other conditions that present differently and at different rates in males and females include hernias, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, and asthma, among many others. Males and females have different normal ranges for kidney function, which impacts drug dosage. They have different symptoms during heart attacks. Males complain of chest pain, while women experience fatigue, dizziness, dizziness and indigestion. In other words, biological sex is a hugely important factor in knowing what ails patients and how to properly treat them. So that does not give me enormous confidence if I have a heart attack and go into the hospital. Right. So this was uh, this was actually a medical student I interviewed who's at a school at the in the University of California system. And what she told me in this piece over a series of a, a, a bunch of interviews is basically that her instructors, when they talk about biological sex, so not just gender, but when they talk about biological sex, their students will complain. So they have uh, at the school, they have some sort of internal internal messaging system. And the last year, of course, was all mostly done online because of COVID. And so these students, while their instructors were lecturing or while they were watching these pre-recorded lectures, would give real-time feedback. And so these, these instructors were essentially being shamed. Uh, and she provided me with a bunch of apologies written in, in uh, audio recordings of apologies of instructors just sort of like, you know, almost bereft at having having what they what they think was like offended these students. Um, and it is, it, it's, it's definitely troubling. There's this conflation of sex and gender. And it is, I think, totally possible to be respectful of, of people's gender identities while still also acknowledging the reality and the, necess the necessity of biological sex, especially in medicine. Yeah, it seems like medicine would be the one field where this, you know, absolutely has to be recognized, right? Right. Um, for the sake many times of people, especially if you, for example, don't immediately present as the biological sex that you were born, they're like, your doctor needs to know that until, you know, lest he or she misdiagnose you with something that's more common in your biological sex than in the sex that you're presenting as. Um, right. And one thing to note here, so medical records should indicate biological sex and as well as gender identity, if that's necessary, but they should indicate biological sex. And they don't always, sometimes biological sex is reflected as someone's chosen gender identity. Um, so there was a case in 2019 where a trans man went to a hospital. He was complaining of stomach pain. The nurse assessed him as obese and, uh, and thought he was in pain because he'd stopped taking his medication for hypertension, didn't realize that this patient was actually female, and it turned out that he was pregnant and in labor. Um, and it was once they, by the time they figured out what was going on, it was too late and, and the baby had died. Uh, this was written up in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the, the, uh, the, the authors of this piece said that this guy was, he didn't know that he was pregnant, but he was just absolutely devastated to find out that he was pregnant and that he'd lost this baby that he actually really wanted. Um, you know, you said that was written up in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's that's another element of this we're seeing, and not just with regard to medical journals, but generally scientific journals. We're starting to see research be, you know, avoided on some of these issues that might, you know, trigger some kind of backlash online or from younger medical students, right? And we're seeing retractions when something does get published that seem at least politically motivated. I know um, you and Jesse talk a lot about, uh, or in recently on your podcast, you've been talking about um, scientific journals issuing those kinds of retractions. I mean, what are the long-term consequences when even, so in in the piece that you're talking about, this, this uh, medical student, Lauren, she's saying, well, I can go and look up that there are these um, ways that various um, either medicines or, or conditions affect the two biological sexes. I mean, what happens when there isn't any research or any new like medical journal pieces being put out about those kinds of medical differences. And it just doesn't get it. There will be nowhere to look it up. Right. I mean, that's one of the ironies here is that for decades, women have been arguing that our health concerns have been ignored because oftentimes 
for instance, when pharmaceutical companies are developing drugs, it's harder to test drugs on women because there's more variability because of our hormones our, or our hormone cycles. And so for decades, women have really argued that there needs to be more attention paid to what are essentially female health problems, just things like heart attacks. Like I didn't know until relatively recently that, that females present with different symptoms and heart attacks than men, than men do. I sort of, you know, you think of like someone grabbing their arm and that would be the, uh, that would be an indication of a heart attack, having that sort of pain right there. That's just not how it manifests in, in, in women or in females. Um, and these are things that women have fought for for years. And now there's this trend where people are just hypersensitive to any sort of perceived offense. And so they're avoiding actually talking about these issues. And one of the retractions that I read about was not actually a retraction, but this was um, this was a paper published in the journal PLOS One by a woman named Lisa Littman, who was then an associate professor at Brown. And she wrote an article on uh, what's what she termed rapid onset gender dysphoria. So this is a population of, of typically natal females, typically adolescents and teenagers who present all of a sudden with gender dysphoria something that for deeply trans people deep or deeply dysphoric people typically presents earlier in life. And she wrote this piece about this emerging population that most of us, I think at this point are aware of where uh, you'll have a, co a cohort of, of teen girls who all at the same time decide that they're transgender. Uh, maybe that's a peer group or maybe they spend a lot of time online. And Littman did this study and there was such an outcry about this that uh, Brown retracted a press release and the journal PLOS One, they didn't retract the paper, but they investigated the paper and then made these minor corrections to the paper, sort of all cosmetic. Um, and she just got a, a ton of heat by that. She uh, is no longer at Brown. She lost her contract with a, a, a state agency um, after, this, after this conflict. And really there was nothing wrong with her work. It was just activist pressure led to all of these consequences for her. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's really scary. That's what scares me um, when it does infiltrate uh, sort of what we might consider the quote unquote harder sciences, right? Um, even, and, and Katya Sedwick, my friend uh, who writes often for The Spectator, I mean, she wrote a piece and she she comes from the former Soviet Union. She immigrated here, and, and she wrote a piece saying, actually, in this small way, I mean, there are many ways in which um, even this current moment in the United States is much better than the former Soviet Union. Don't get me wrong, sure. um, but she said in this particular way, it's actually kind of worse because the Soviet Union was still very invested in having planes stay up, mm -hmm. right? Like they didn't have this enormous font of wealth the way the United States does and this sort of security that that wealth and prosperity and and in this case, you know, access to the miracles of modern medicine will just continue, right, um, without the the necessary research. So she said, yeah, you had to, to toe the political line in, in all kinds of places in life. If you were writing equations, you were sort of in some way you had a little oasis away from that unless you went ahead and actually engaged in politics. You, you were kind of left alone to write your equations or to do medical research um, because they simply aren't as, as sort of wealthy and decadent as the United States. So they couldn't afford to have all that stuff go to crap um, very quickly. But I, I mean, is this going to undermine trust in your family doctor, in medical institutions going forward? I mean, what is this going to do to, I mean, you mentioned patients who are going in, sometimes older patients and being berated about being asked, you know, whether they're a man or a woman. I mean, what is this going to do to trust going forward? People actually utilizing medical care. Yeah, I think that's a problem and we'll see how far it spreads. I think we're just beginning to see this emerge uh, right now. But for instance, I, I talked to a student at a medical school, um, at a top medical school uh, on the East Coast. And she told me that her, her mother was an immigrant and her mom doesn't speak very good English. And if a doctor, if she, so she already has trouble sort of uh, absorbing information from her doctors. And if her doctor is asking her what her pronoun is, it's going to be confusing to her and not just confusing, but kind of insulting. And this is something that doctors are, some doctors are advocating for this uh, pronoun declaration because there's a small minority of people who have alternate pronouns or present in some gender non-normative way. Um, and so in an effort to be hypersensitive to this one small population, we're spreading this narrative or spreading this ideology to all populations. And, uh, you know, I don't know at this point how widespread this is, but for instance, at the, the Washington Post, 
lat or in February published a, a, a column by by a young doctor or a resident who said this, who said, it's really important to ask my patients their pronouns and to tell them my pronouns, to announce my own pronouns to them. They don't like it. A lot of them, most of them don't like it and are offended by this, but it's important to do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, maybe it's, it's a uh, bias from where I live in, in New York, but I don't know if it's that unusual because it, it seems like even in, in practice, it's pretty widespread. I mean, a little bit personal and embarrassing, but I, I, I went um, to the gynecologist for something routine and I had to put on a gynecologist, you know, form that I am in fact female. Like, yeah. Th yeah. this is a little absurd <laughs> given what I'm there for, right? Um, but that's not, you know, a huge deal. But when you're talking about kind of questioning patients um, about things like that. I mean, I'm anecdotally hearing, for example, that some of my friends who are parents, they're worried about their kids being questioned because they're finding that when they go into the, the pediatrician for well, wellness visits, that the pediatrician is asking their, you know, four or five-year-old kids, you know, are you a boy or a girl? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they're, they're starting to think like, I mean, they want to access the care, but they're, they are starting to feel nervous about taking their kids to the pediatrician. Like, that's certainly not what we want, right? We don't want people not going to get medical care because they're, you know, either offended or, or just feel uncomfortable with the way that the medical system is dealing with some of these issues. Right. And I think also last summer after the death of George Floyd and there were these mass protests and then after months of having the public health establishment tell us we need to stay home, you need to stay home for frontline workers, we need to keep these people safe to have, you know, 180 degree messaging coming out after the death of George Floyd, where these public health people and doctors and nurses and other people in the field are saying, no, you need to go out and protest. And so I think that does, that mixed messaging really does lead to a uh, a lack of trust. And, and a lot of people now are talking about this sort of crisis of, of trust in institutions. And, and I don't think these public health people, at a, at, a, at a time when we really should be, have, we should be able to trust these institutions, especially because of the pandemic. Um, I don't think they're doing anything to inspire it. Yeah, that, that to me has been one of the tragedies of the pandemic. And, and I also pinpoint what you just said is basically the moment that I think this country lost control of the pandemic. And when, um, you know, pandemic mitigation measures became fully ensconced as part of the culture war and became fully political was yeah. that moment in the summer where you had, you know, official medical boards, um, not only doctors individually, but the CDC and, you know, um, people representing those institutions going on TV saying, you know, um, after telling people for months that they couldn't even gather in small groups, for example, to celebrate the life of a, a dead loved one at a funeral or a wedding, right? Um, they were telling you, you couldn't gather in even small groups. They suddenly endorsed gathering in very, very large groups because that was the correct political cause. I just, I saw it happen in live time. People, and I'm on the right, obviously. So like a lot of my friends are on the right. And I saw it happen in live time, even people who had not necessarily been, let's say, in some of the early protests against masks, masks and lockdowns and all that, were suddenly, they were like, I'm not doing this anymore. If, right. if these institutions are endorsing it, this whole, they're endorsing these protests, this whole thing is political. And I no longer trust those institutions. It, it seems like that's only going to get worse if these institutions like the reporting that you're doing doubled down on what are essentially political issues rather than actually sticking to their their lane, quote unquote, right? And actually providing unbiased medical advice and care. Yeah, it's very bad messaging. I don't know who was giving these, are they taking their advice from Twitter? I don't know. It's terrible messaging. Um, so, I mean, do you, do you think that, I guess, Obviously, there will be an impact on on how much people trust going forward, not only at the individual level, going to the doctor, but even, you know, I'm really afraid that if we'll have another pandemic, nobody will listen to any of the institutions, not even a little bit after that performance. I mean, it seems like this is sort of the dynamic going beyond the medical field now, but in a lot of the institutions, right? It's a similar dynamic in the newsrooms where, you know, Barry Weiss forced out by essentially complaints from 
younger, there's a generational dynamic you referenced in the beginning of our conversation where younger reporters are trying to impose this illiberal vision on people, let's say you are my age and then up. Um, and I mean, that seems like that's also happening to some extent in, in corporate boardrooms. It's happening um, even in government agencies. The difference between the people working for the, the Biden administration now in these various agencies that are, you know, whatever one thinks about Biden and what his actual positions are on some of these these issues, some of his, um, you know, people who are working in the agencies for the Biden administration a lot of them worked in the Obama administration and now they are considerably more woke. Even the same people have totally different priorities that have more to do with, you know, quote unquote, racial justice or, or, um, you know, some of the, or, or redefining sex in the law, for example, um, you're seeing essentially a entire generation of people as they gain more power in these institutions. You know, what's, what is the end point of this? I mean, do we need to to sort of circumvent them and build something new? Is there any hope of, I mean, I would like to rescue Yale Medical School. It seems to me that that's pretty, as far as institutions go, that's a pretty important one to try to take back from the the folks who um, would, would politicize it in this way. Yeah, there has been this uh, all across different industries, this, these attempts to sort of subvert the hierarchy. And I kind of get that, you know, historically medicine has been extremely hierarchical. There's lots of power imbalances. This is, this is happening in, in lots of different fields. I sort of understand the impulse there, but what's the problem to me is that despite what these, I'll just call them kids, I'll be condescending and call them kids, what these kids are trying to do, the adults are not standing up and saying, wait a second, no. And just, you know, these pieces that I've been reporting, it is incredibly difficult to get people on the record or people to come out as opposed to these policies because they are scared for their livelihoods. And if you have, so I have tons of anonymous sources, some of whom are very important people, but if they're not willing to put their names to these, to their, to their complaints, basically, I'm not sure how anything is going to change. And I completely understand uh, it's a self-protection measure. You know, you don't want your name attached to these to these complaints. You don't want to be the the one person who comes out and says, "Wait a second, things are going off the rails." But without people willing to do that, I don't see how things are going to change. Yeah, there does seem to be sort of a, a crisis of people are are willing to say anonymously um, that this is crazy. Uh, that a lot of what's happening is crazy, but how to inspire people to be and. I understand it's actually you you were you would be the perfect person to ask this question because for me one conservatives are kind of pre-canceled right like yeah. honest, the twitter mob almost doesn't care as much for example about conservatives because we're just off in in the corner we have our own sort of institutions and networks um it's it in some way the cancellation fire is strongest for people who are like like you are on the liberal left or who were in some of these liberal institutions like the New York Times, right? Um, I mean, you yourself st started out getting a lot of this this kind of heat after writing, I think you were writing for um, a Alt Weekly in Seattle, right? Um, and, and you wrote about a piece about detransitioners, right? People who had undergone some kind of, of sex transition and then decided that that wasn't for them and transitioned back. Um, so you went through, so what was that experience like um, in terms of the backlash you received? And then how do we get more people, I mean, to go through that experience and come out on the other side? Yeah, so I wrote a piece in 2017 for The Stranger, Seattle's Alt Weekly, um, called The Detransitioners. And as you said, it was about people who transitioned from one uh, gender identity or, or sex to the other and then transitioned back. They changed their mind, essentially. And uh, at the time, a lot has been written about detransitioners now, and it's not that hard to find detransitioners. But at the time, this was a pretty, this wasn't something people were really talking about. And the piece was, um, you know, when I read back on it now, I'm sort of embarrassed by all of the hedging that I did because I really went out of my way to to um, make sure people knew that that I think that 
trans adults should are you know should have access to healthcare that laws banning transition or bathroom bills are bad i still believe that but i really i really hedged I, half the piece was probably sort of reassuring people that i had the correct politics on this even though this wasn't an opinion piece but it was thoroughly reported it was it was fact checked i had trans sensitivity readers and then after it came out you know thinking that this was going to not thinking that this was going to change my life in any way um, there was this just this huge outcry and a lot of it was online of course but it also went offline and so i guess the first sort of weird thing was that people started making flyers and putting them around seattle calling the piece transphobic and the paper transphobic somebody burned stacks of the paper and sent me a video of it people put stickers around seattle calling me transphobic um it, it was just it just got very bizarre very quickly i lost a bunch of friends i sort of became persona non grata in seattle's queer community um, and so it had this this really major impact on my on my social life. It was a very stressful experience. Ironically, it was good for my career. Um, it was probably the best thing I could have done for my career because it 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 gave me a a name that I really didn't have before. You know, I'd been a, a, a freelancer writing mostly about climate change until then. Um, and so, you know, there is sort of this irony that sometimes when you attempt to cancel people, it has the the opposite of the intended effect. Um, but, you know, for me, it's been it's four years later, I can say that this has been a it was a good experience and it was a terrible experience at the time. But out of far from the sort of acute stage of it, I can say that this changed me in some really fundamental and important ways. I became much more skeptical as a reporter, uh, much more empathetic towards people who have been who are blamed for things, uh, just, you know, before the evidence comes out. Um, but not everybody is going to want to go through this experience. And not that I wanted to go through this experience, but not everybody's going to benefit from that. You know, there's something about being in the media where you can sort of create a brand for yourself. And now with platforms like Substack and Patreon, uh, become independently funded so that you don't have to rely on institutions who might not be willing to publish you um, because staff members will complain. Um, so, you know, for me, it hasn't been uh, it hasn't been all bad. But I think for a lot of people who aren't working in fields like media, who are working in fields like medicine or working in tech or or, or any corporation or government, the there's very little upside to sticking your neck out, and that's really a fundamental problem here. Um, we need some sort of I don't know uh, some sort of not mass uprising. That's too dramatic, but just some sort of uh, there's power in numbers, right? And the more people who speak out. Um, I think the more effective that will be at at, a, at exposing exposing this ideology as it creeps through different institutions. I, I also think, though, that you know there are all sorts of trends in human behavior and over time, and I think this is one of them. And trends end at some point, so I don't think that this is a, a, like a totally an existential crisis. I think that this will end. How it will end, I'm not sure. But I think that, and also we're seeing a lot of backlash now. So like the woker the left gets, the more reactionary the right gets. And that's also a problem. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a liberal and I'm opposed to many of the laws coming out of, out of conservative state governments. And I think that they are a direct result of, of the, this, uh, this woke ideology on the left. Um, how this ends, I don't have a crystal ball, um, but I, I hope it is peaceably and quickly. Um, yeah, well, we can all, we can all hope that I'm probably considerably more pessimistic, uh, on that score. Um, but perhaps that's, that's just the difference between being liberal and being conservative. I'm sure. pessimistic about the, the entire state of humankind yeah. always. So, um, it doesn't surprise me as much to see us descending into this, but, um, you know, as you said, there's no way for a lot of people like, like in, in a field like medicine, you need the institutional backing, right? And, and there's sort of a requirement for it in a way that they're not, there isn't necessarily in media, right? I do think gatekeepers and media have a purpose. And part of what we're seeing is those, as those gatekeepers throw away their institutional credibility, then you have sort of this thousand flowers bloom effect, which has many, many upsides and also has the downside that we're not working with a common palette of facts. Oftentimes we're, um, we have totally op opposing, not just worldviews, but worlds um, that are, are sort of reflected in these various democratically, uh, small d democratically sort of dispersed media sources. Um, but 
in a field like medicine, you know, you don't want to let a thousand flowers bloom in terms of people right. calling themselves doctors, right? Right, um, right. I think the field is more more difficult in that way. But you you say that there are essentially these Zoom groups. It sounds like these Zoom groups have to start becoming real organized groups. That and maybe that's one potential way forward. Is these people need they already seem like they're finding each other and they're various wink, wink, nod, nod ways to do that. Um, like in the Bay Area where I grew up, uh, if you were sort of center or right of center, you would put an American flag on your car. And that mm -hmm. became like <laughs> probably something similar in Seattle. That became uh, a symbol um, that was sort of plausibly deniable to, to uh, let other people know that <laughs> you were right. a different political orientation than those around you. But that people find each other in these ways. I mean, how do we maybe encourage them to to formalize some of these groups so that it's not just one person speaking out, risking their credentials or risking their journal articles being retracted or whatever? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's opportunity here in academia in particular because of tenure. And in, especially in, uh, in public institutions, academics are really very protected in terms of, of their ability to say what they want without, without getting fired for it. There are certainly attempts to, uh, to get them fired, but oftentimes there's recourse. Um, so I would like to see academics, particularly tenured academics, um, speaking up because those are the people who obviously have a lot to lose, but they also have this, uh, this sort of built-in protection that, that most of us in, uh, in private industry or in the public sector don't have. Yeah, I guess I, I just keep coming back to this question of how do we support people both financially and personally, right? Because it's not just the financial. The reason that so few people in academia do speak up, even though they have tenure, isn't just because they're afraid that there'll be a Twitter campaign to get them right. canceled. It's because the people that they, their colleagues, their friends, like their social network will abandon them or think that they're a terrible person or, or um, you know, an immoral fascist or whatever it is. Um, that, I feel like that half is almost as powerful. Obviously, like the financial sure. piece is probably the most important piece, but that second half... It's huge. It's huge. The social pressure to conform. I mean, I think we saw this a, a lot last summer during the George Floyd protests where you just had, like in my own social networks, people who I know were fundamentally apolitical and basically uninformed, getting sort of all in, going all in on, on defunding the police and all cops are bastards sort of overnight, um, some of which I think they probably believe in. Sometimes it's just this, there's this this external pressure to conform to a narrative and you don't want to be the person who doesn't, you know, put up the black square on your Instagram. And we saw, you know, corporations being called out by their employees or their customers for issuing statements in support of George Floyd that weren't strong enough Right. So th this is also this is a, a, a major issue is how do you uh, how do you um, when every every sort of external social element is telling you to act a certain way, how do you be the person who does the opposite? And I think it takes certain personality types who are going to be willing to do this. And, and not everybody has that. So here's maybe where we will disagree a little bit, because, you know, I, I guess the question I would ask is, why do you think that ratchet, that sort of soft culture pressure only goes one way. And I think that would cut against your thesis a little bit about this being essentially a, a quick trend, whereas I see it more as the result of institutional power, the left, um, the cultural left specifically, like that creates this, this thing that um, we can't easily identify, right? That we're all like, you know, fish in an ocean, don't feel the water kind of thing. But when, all of the, I mean, the academy has been very far left for a very long time, overwhelmingly. There's all the studies done on, you know, the 0.1% or more like 1% actually, but of, of uh, for example, sociology professors or whatever who identify as, as Republican or conservative um, in those institutions. So that's been, you know, a complaint of the right going all the way back to William F. Buckley 70 years ago. Um, but I think as the academy has become not just left, but one particular stripe of the left where you see people even in the center left or the liberal left starting to feel that pressure from their own left. Um, you know, I, I think that has effects in the, in the kind of ripple effects in the other institutions, right? So my field is K-12 policy. 
And I mean, I can tell you the the predecessors of this started in K twelve schools. I know you you and Barry are interested in um, in in look tra- sort of tracking quote unquote wokeness right in in the education system. Uh, but it started even 20, 30 years ago already. Sure. This is not something that happened just since the protests around George Floyd. Yeah. I, I guess the challenge to your flash in the pan theory would be, which, I mean, to give it its due, is totally possible these things happen. We had had moral panics before. Right. Um, but I guess I see this as a more worrying thing that has, you know, the potential to last a lot longer because it's got so deep into all of these institutions that then create that water is wet kind of feeling for everybody. And and as you say, it pushes the apolitical or or the non-activist type of people. You have to conform in order to be considered a good person. Right, right. Yeah. And I think education, I mean, if we look at, at education schools and universities, that's probably the root of a lot of what's happening in K-12 and in, 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 uh, you know, in, in public institutions right now is that these ed schools are, have been for, and my mom taught in an ed school, so I know a little bit about it, really have been, they only, they basically attract a very small, uh, a very small sort of um, ideological students and they indoctrinate them. Um, you know, I've, I've interviewed students at the University of Washington education program and they and they've told me like this, the school is all about the schools are all about social justice. They're they're not talking about anything except for social justice in these schools. And if those are the people who are teaching the next generation of students, well, then the next generation of students will be indoctrinated, uh, indoctrinated into this ideology as well. Yeah, I think that's really what we're seeing in surveys and, you know we've mentioned already several times the idea that uh, this is sort of a generational divide. Uh, but we're seeing in surveys that if you, you know, pick your your sort of um, woke statement of the day, right, about sex and gender, about race, about any of these hot button topics, and you can stack the generations, right, um, in terms of, of, you know, the majority of millennials and Gen Z tend to agree with some of these statements and surveys, and the majority of Gen X and above with, I think, people like us maybe on the cusp of it, right? Um, sort of older millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do see that. And I think that's exactly the effect of it jumping from the academy and the ed schools to, you know, there are going to be, there's going to be an entire generation of American voters and, you know, uh, professionals, right, in all of these fields that believe these things, which is why I, I tend to think that it's not going to stop. It's going to get worse. And then even if, if we do succeed, for example, in pushing some of these ideas out of the education system, however, that, you know, battle is, is sort of waged and won, we still will have to contend with this huge demographic bulge of people who grew up seeing these ideas basically unimpeachable. Right. I I think it really also, it kind of comes down to where you live. You know, and, and this isn't, uh, it's not a state by state thing, but I think even even more granular, just sort of a district by district level, because the education that you're getting in, you know, a small town Texas is probably not going to be the same education that you're getting in Seattle, Washington. Um, and we can see this just with, with districts and, and states pushing back on CRT and education. Um, so I think that's also sort of this interesting, interesting dynamic coming out of this is we already live in this incredibly divided country where everything feels like it's red or blue. It's like team sports. And so, you know, if you're in a school district in San Francisco, you're probably learning that or you're maybe learning that there are 17 genders and that race is the most important thing about you. And if you're in, in you know, in a, some district in Texas, you're learning sort of the opposite. So we're also going to be raising students to, like all of our cultural issues are also going to be filtering down um, into the next generation and in, in terms of what sort of education people are are, uh, are receiving in their schools. And it also depends on what's going on in the federal government. Um, I'm a Biden voter. I was happy to vote for anybody to get Donald Trump out of office. But I was also concerned about uh, Biden, even though he was the, the least woke candidate of the Democrats, of him incorporating some of these ideas into the federal government. And it is happening. We, we can see it happening. We can see it happening in his policies. Um, but we don't know who's going to be the president next time. You know, is the president going to be it? Maybe it'll be Donald Trump and we'll see the opposite things coming out of the out of the federal government. Um, 
Yeah, I guess I'd like to ask you maybe how you feel about um, supporting Biden, not in a like sort of partisan way, but because I followed this kind of discourse during the the election, for example, from folks like Andrew Sullivan, who, you know, clearly and you who clearly, um, you know, see the danger of, of one particular part of the left um, taking over, but are also concerned or equally concerned or more concerned about that on the right. And I, so I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I, I, even though I'm a lifelong, basically Republican, um, decided not to vote for him, didn't like him. Uh, and just, you know, wrote in, I just wrote in a dead guy. I mean, I didn't, I didn't Mm -hmm. vote that year basically. Um, and, and then wrote a piece about why I did vote for Donald Trump, um, in, in 2020. And, And a lot of it was exactly, the institutional backing for the woke left versus for Donald Trump, like whatever you think about the, the sort of um, to the extent that a, a crazy right wing exists, I just don't see them having the kind of institutional power. Um, and therefore they don't worry me as much like the, the um, you know, some of the more extreme parts of the right, even in the Donald Trump administration and even Donald Trump himself as president was, you know, opposed by everybody who worked in his own agencies, um, was opposed. Of course, the, the media was fanatically and, and counterproductively opposed to Donald Trump, right? Uh, to the extent that they Sorry. blew all their credibility on it. Sorry, Moose is a uh, Moose just woke up. Let me let him out. Give me a second. Unless you want to see him. No, I do want to see him. Moose, come here. Come here. Come here. Come say hi. Come say hi. Come here. Moose for listeners. Moose is Katie's. In a uh, Twitter famous golden doodle, right? Yes. This very is Moose. Sweet. This Moose's uh, Moose's testicles were written about in the Washington Post today, so he's very proud. <laughs> yes, as I mentioned at the top and in the bio, Katie um, has not neutered her dog, and this has uh, she's written about that decision very interestingly. I know it's a strange recommendation, but I highly recommend the piece that Katie wrote about her decision not to uh, take, take her dog to the snip snip. How could um, you take these balls away? I mean, just look <laughs> at this precious guy. Oh, yeah. Um, no, but I, I just, I guess that was the rationale. And I'm wondering how you feel about the Biden administration thus far. Because it seems to me that um, even though Biden himself has made relatively few nods in the sort of rhetorical level, the people actually running all of the agencies, I mean, you had a, um, you know, proposed rule that is now delayed because there were so many comments submitted in opposition, but um, a proposed rule to, to give out grants on the basis of schools implementing critical race theory. Um, we've seen Title VI and Title IX, um, the definition of sex rewritten by sort of executive, um, executive uh, fiat, which is these dear colleague letters. I mean, we're seeing a lot, like a lot of the Biden administration out output has been, I think, more on the subjects of racial discrimination and and sort of the, the gender wars. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly was conflicted about voting for Biden, not so conflicted that I didn't do it. Um, but to me, this issue is very important. It's obviously it's important. I write about it all the time. I think about it all the time. But it's not the only issue. I'm also concerned with not just wokeness in medicine in our healthcare system. I'm also, I'm more concerned about the fact that so many millions of Americans don't have access to healthcare. Not that Biden has fixed that. Um, And so for me, my politics are more than just these cultural issues. And in fact, I wish that that these cultural issues were totally separate from the government. Obviously, that's never going to happen. But um, but it bothers me to see these adopted by these cultural issues to become fodder for for basically campaigns. Um, but so things like infrastructure, things like, and not Trump's pretend infrastructure week where everything goes to shit, but actual in the actual infrastructure bill, um, trying to get people insured, um, working on 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 housing, uh, housing and things like this. They're just to me, there's just bigger issues um, than this one thing. Uh, do I think that Biden will usher in some woke apocalypse? No, not entirely. I mean, it's, it's sort of my my the darker moments of the night. Maybe I, I I have those thoughts every once in a while. But just I try to look at politics as just sort of bigger picture. And for me, I mean, the reason that I'm a liberal is because I think that the government has an obligation and a responsibility to care for our 
most downtrodden and our poorest citizens. And I just, I just see Democrats doing, or at least trying to do a better job of that. I'm not so dogmatic that I think that, um, that Republicans, Republican policies couldn't in theory do just as well, but until they, uh, until they, they prove themselves just as effective or I don't know, sort of harnessing the public sector or whatever to, to, to cure things like poverty. If you guys can figure it out, I will become a Republican. Um, but I just don't see that happening. Um, and so to me, it just, it just came down to what is more important, you know, policies on climate change, policies on, uh, on, on healthcare or, uh, these cultural issues. And I just, for me, this, these other things just end up being more important. It's, it's interesting because that makes you, I think, one of the very rare band of voters who are actually prioritizing um, what might be called traditional political issues or economic issues over the culture war. Because it seems like the polarization is happening in the opposite direction uh, where you have people going with their vote on the cultural side of things, even if they disagree with economics. And I, I think it, it'll be really interesting to see if we get a, a non-woke Bernie style candidate. Sure. Because like- Could be Tucker Carlson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you, you mentioned it a second ago. So I think you're right about one thing and wrong about something, one thing. So I, I think it's true that cult, that progressives, liberals do have this sort of cultural um, cultural power right now in a way that, for instance, after 9-11, we didn't have, you know, much more, much more conservative. Uh, the, there was also deep pressure to conform after 9-11 and to jump on this sort of jingoistic nationalistic bandwagon. Um, but Republicans do have a lot of power in a lot of places. I mean, uh, courts in many places are dominated by Republicans. You know, if you want to get an abortion in Georgia or Texas, you know, I don't know how you feel about about that particular issue. It's something that's that's not top of my list of important things, but I, I do believe in a, a woman's right to have an abortion. That's going to be a lot harder to do in some of these states. So again, I think it really comes down to where you live. And we oftentimes have the perception that... Uh, I think the the culture is for sure like like American culture right now, I think dominated by progressive values, Hollywood, the media, academia, publishing. But Republicans still do. I mean, the Supreme Court is dominated by conservatives. So I don't think it's quite true to say that that liberals have taken over that, that we have all the power that we have have taken over all of these institutions because the ones that that are the most important, which I think are governments are oftentimes uh, still dominated by conservatives. So I'll agree with you to the extent that I think um, Republicans still have traded power back and forth with Democrats or even the progressives in terms of pure politics. I guess that's been the critique from a lot of people on the right, um, including me, which was basically that we put all of our chips in the political in, in sort of raw political power, winning elections and then implementing, you know, tax cuts or, you know, sort of Republican economic goals. And we forgot that actually what really moves the culture over time is academia, is Hollywood, is, you know, all of these cultural institutions. Um, and so that, that's been a critique on the right for me among other folks, but um, that, that in fact, that was a huge mistake, right? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, put I, all of our chips in the in the purely political yeah. means that we're always losing continually on these important cultural issues, but we're losing right. slowly and over time in right. a way that you know a frog's boiled in a pot. I guess the question is just what has more impact on people's daily lives. And again, I think it really comes down to where you live. I mean, I live in a blue state. You live in a blue state. Our experiences during pandemic are going to be very different than the experience of somebody living in Florida. That's true. Um, we do still have federalism and, and there is still certainly um, Republicans do have historic actually dominance um, in state legislatures. Um, and that's mm -hmm. been the case for the last decade or so. Actually, mm -hmm. it started really with the waves of 2010. Mm -hmm. um, but again, because Republicans, I think, had lost a lot on the national level. So they they invested a lot politically in, in um, state legislatures. I think you might see yeah. which is Democrats figure out that actually that could be a battleground too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Republicans are in many ways better at politics than, uh, than liberals are. This is We're better at culture. You're better at politics. That might be true. Uh, I just did something that I think is really funny. Just observationally, every 
liberal or progressive even is just convinced the Democratic Party is really, really bad at politics. And every conservative <laughs> the Republican Party is really, really bad at politics. I think that probably the truth is they're both really bad at yeah. politics. Yeah. You know, um, I, also, I also think that this uh, this breakdown, you know, it's, it's a, a handy shorthand to talk about conservative and liberal, but I also think things are really changing and that's not really... Um, you know, the, the metric doesn't really work as much. I mean, I, I see things as sort of more like, are you an authoritarian? Or are you a libertarian? Um, you know, and sort of the, the way that people are thinking about uh, the role of government and the role of culture right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one axis. I also think what what's, we're seeing is the biggest group of undecided voters, which is why I said as a conservative, I fear the anti-woke Bernie, right? Yeah. Because I actually think that would be a really potent and successful political force in in America, meaning universal health care, uh, you know, raising the minimum wage, uh, mm -hmm. which are you know, things I disagree with on an economic basis, but mm -hmm. plus, you know, a sort of center right cultural sensibility and a pushback against the like if, if a Democratic Party were to run somebody like that, I feel like that would be very difficult for Republicans to yeah. to win. Like I think there's a huge opportunity. And the flip side, I think if Republicans ran somebody who was more flexible on economic issues and, for example, added universal health care to the th these are things I disagree with as a policy matter, but I'm just trying to think strategically that yeah. candidate would be really, really difficult to stop. Yeah. I mean, Bernie himself house. wasn't particularly woke. Was His not, staffers yeah. uh, certainly were, but but he himself and Bernie, I mean, I think besides the fact that Bernie's, you know, old and he's from Vermont, he hasn't gotten much done in his political career. Um, the, the 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 stink of socialists, I think. Uh, I don't think. I think liberals really over uh, overestimate how well that term goes over in um, in most of America. Yeah, for, for sure. And and um, Bernie Bernie is himself uh, an interesting case in this because in 2016 he was notably not as woke, mm -hmm. um, and then when he ran again in 2020, had seemed to have reversed his positions. For example, on immigration over time. Yeah, um, reversed. He he paid a lot more lip service. It's, you could tell it's still not what motivates his little Marxist right. heart, right? Obviously, right. his his bread right. and butter are are still class and economic issues, but he paid a lot more lip service to it, and I think that's indicative of where the Democratic Party is going. But uh, we we could talk, we could uh, argue about uh, how the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are failing everyone for a very yes. long time. Oh, I think um, we can agree on that. They're both terrible. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's the common ground. Um, but but Katie, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Um, you can follow Katie's work by subscribing to her podcast and the Patreon for it. Um, Patreon, Patreon, I never know. Um, as well as I hope you'll be writing more pieces for for Barry Weiss's Substack and more reports. Uh, her, her reported pieces on uh, the medical industry and medical field have been really, really eye-opening. I highly recommend those as well as her pieces on dog neutering. Mm -hmm. um, Katie, thank you so much for coming on High Noon with, with Moose as well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave and we'll see you next time on High Noon.